Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. The field of plastic surgery has come to be quite broad and to encompass many different areas of treatment, whether for aesthetic or reconstructive purposes. Yet the public mostly knows only a limited portion about it, just what they see or hear in the media. So what's been the path of this fascinating field, and where is it headed? Here to help us dig a little deeper, we have Dr. Foad Nahai, one of the most accomplished and respected plastic surgeons living today. Listen in as he shares insight from his extensive knowledge and experience and weighs in on plastic surgery's exciting future as well. A rare opportunity to hear from one of the greats. And we are so excited to have Dr. Fouad Nahai with us today. Thank you, first of all, for being here. I'm happy to join you and happy to have a discussion with you about something we both love, our specialty. This is exactly right. And I'm not sure if the listeners realize what an honor it is to have you here. Uh, You are so accomplished. And, uh, you know, let me just go over your background a little bit. You went to med school at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom, and you did your surgery training in plastics at Johns Hopkins and Emory. And currently you're a professor of surgery at Emory. You've published over 14 books and 250 peer-reviewed publications, currently an editor-in-chief of Aesthetic Surgery Journal and past president of numerous societies, tremendous achievements, numerous awards and recognition worldwide. So this is a delight to have you here. And I mean, every time I look up, you have some new um, accomplishment or you've contributed to something or you have been able to weigh in on something uh, because of your vast experience. So that's why I really thought you were the perfect candidate to talk about our topic today, which is plastic surgery. Where has it been and where is it headed? Um, could you please just tell us a little bit about your current scope of practice and maybe how that's changed over the years? Well, I, I like to say I've done just about everything in plastic surgery. I've been a hand surgeon, a microsurgeon, a flap surgeon. Uh, I've been described as uh, the go-to person for impossible wounds to take care of. And uh, I must say I've loved every stage of my career. Obviously, when I first started, it was mostly the tough cases Uh, replanting fingers, replanting other parts that have been avulsed, uh, taking care of difficult wounds, taking care of 
problems from other specialists because they either didn't have the interest or the uh, knowledge to deal with them. And then my career progressed to where now I do almost exclusively aesthetic surgery. I still have patients from 30, 40 years ago that I did procedures on and I happy to see them back. That's and amazing. I like to think I still know how to do the reconstructive procedures that we've done on them in the past. Oh, absolutely. And you have made so many contributions in the reconstructive aspect of plastic surgery alone. And then, you know, as you've transitioned to more of an aesthetic practice, all of the uh, accomplishments and additions that you've made uh, things that have really enhanced the practices of your colleagues. And so I know many people are quite grateful for that and, and respect all that you have achieved. Um, but as you look over your practice over the years, what types of cases have you found to be the most satisfying? I'm sure there are many, but are there some that kind of stand out to you? You know, we say as uh, plastic surgeons and especially we can say for those of us who do mostly aesthetics, it's about faces, figures, and feelings. Oh, I like that. I want to stick on feelings. And I think one of the most memorable uh, times in my career was very, very early in my career, I took care of a young lady born with what we call a bilateral cleft lip and palate. I operated on her, and back in those days, she was one of my uh, board cases. And 15 years later, out of the blue, I get a photograph of a very beautiful young woman graduating from high school. So oh, it's lovely. those sort of things to see that you know we do change lives. And I know that the public perception of plastic surgery is the glamorous things that they see, the exaggerated claims of some of our colleagues on mm -hmm. social media, and then the glorification through some of these uh, TV shows and reality shows that make it look as if this is almost magic, make it look as if anyone can be transformed into another person, there's no risk. It's just done easily and smoothly. Not very realistic, is it? What we really do, whether we're doing reconstructive, whether you're up in the middle of the night repairing somebody's hand or repairing a face that was injured in an accident, you know, we do change lives. So uh, of the three Fs, faces, figures, and feelings, it's the cases where the patients have actually told me how what we did changed their lives that mm. makes all of this uh, worth it. Uh, I recall another young woman very, very early in my career had her long hair caught in the drive shaft of her father's oh. uh, logging machine and it took off her eyebrows. Goodness. And we were able to replant that and she looked great. The hair grew back. And again, 20 years later, I receive a letter from a an obstetrician in Boston saying that that patient now is married, she's pregnant, she will be delivering. Oh. And are there any contraindications or special precautions 
they should take because we had replanted her scalp. So for our listeners, could you explain what a replant is? Yes, absolutely. A replant basically means replacing a part that has been detached. And in, and most of them are traumatic or accidental, a finger being cut off. In this patient's case, her whole scalp being pulled off. Uh, we've seen ears that have been amputated. And I've seen at least three or four patients whose male genitalia had been amputated. Mm. So by replant, it means you put it back. And the way you put it back is to put tiny little arteries and veins together. And in the case of the forehead, in the case of male genitalia, putting the nerves together so that eventually the part that was detached is reattached. It's alive. Has blood supply and function as normal. Yes, it's it's quite an achievement, and uh, a great amount of training goes into skill of doing that. And you have such great experience with that. But you were about to say that aesthetic cases uh, have made a significant difference in people's lives. Yes, uh, as I said, the perception of plastic surgery again. I feel it's unjust. Uh, that that uh, you know we all lead glamorous lives and we operate on celebrities and wealthy people and we're out there with a, with a lifestyle that some people portray on the media. But the truth is, we work very hard. Uh, in my case, I graduated from medical school in Bristol, England, and it wasn't for another nine years that I started practicing as a plastic surgeon at Emory University. It was an intense nine years of training. You learn not only anatomy and how body parts function, how to operate, but you also learn to deal with people, to understand their emotions. And I think one of the best attributes of a good physician and in, I think a good aesthetic surgeon is to sit and listen to your patient, mm -hmm. what your patients want, not what you think they should have, but mm -hmm. what they want. How do they want to alter their nose, their neck or your eyes? So we do change lives. And I had a patient tell me today, she'd had several operations on her face, had had serious complications. And she made my day. She said, I'm so happy I found you. Oh, so it, good to hear. we do affect lives. What we do is serious. And I like to tell my patients that, you know, forget the word cosmetic. Remember the word surgery. Surgery has risk. Surgery has consequences. And the first operation is the most important. If it does, isn't done properly, you may go to the best in the country and have a second or a third one. But the essential thing is that the first one wasn't done appropriately. It's very difficult to put it all together again. Absolutely. Yeah, those are wise words. Well, over the decades, you have seen yourself a lot of advances in plastic surgery. And just to give people a perspective, are there some particular milestones of accomplishments in the field of plastic surgery that you think have had 
great impact in terms of what we can now offer patients, whether they're your own innovations or those of others. What kinds of things do you think have really made a difference in the evolution of plastic surgery, where it's been, and what we can accomplish in the future? Absolutely. Just one word, uh, just to put everything in perspective. Our specialty was born basically out of the First World War, where terrific damage was done to faces especially, and the fathers of our specialty, especially in England, were able to move tissues around to rebuild the face. But the way they did it was very, very cumbersome. In those mm-hmm. stages, the tissues had to be turned into a tube, placed on the chest, then placed on the face. I was very fortunate that during my training, uh, what we call muscle flaps and muscular cutaneous flaps and microsurgery exploded onto the scene and basically permanently and effectively transformed our specialty so that if we wanted to take some extra skin and fat from the lower tummy, we could take it in one stage as opposed to marching it up in stages. In multiple surgeries, yeah. Could you explain for the listeners what a flap is? A flap is a compound tissue. Skin, then you have fat, then you have the muscle underneath. So when you put the skin and fat together, it's called a flap. When you put mm-hmm. skin, fat, and muscle together, it's still a flap. Mm-hmm. And one of the contributions or one of the areas that I was involved in early on was defining the blood supply to these various flaps that were based on the muscles underneath so that you would know that you could cut around a specific muscle, you know where the arteries and veins are, and then you could move that tissue or totally detach it from the body, take it elsewhere, let's say the face or the leg and reattach it with those blood vessels. Uh, The reason it's called microsurgery is because if you operate on an artery in the wrist or deep in the body, they're very large. Some of them are the size even of a hose pipe, and those are stitched together easily with the naked eye. But if somebody's lost a finger, we take a piece of tissue from the tummy on a tiny blood vessel that's even smaller than a piece of spaghetti, more the size of a piece of uh, Michelli, <laughs> then we needed the microscope to, to put those together. Put those tiny little stitches in. Absolutely. And we talk about microsurgery and flaps in the mid-70s into the early 80s. Then they truly revolutionized how we did things. And then the next step was what we call tissue expansion, if you're short of tissue and you can't bring two edges of the wound together, you would put a little empty balloon under the skin and then gradually by placing salt water into it, it would stretch the skin. Uh, if I don't offend anyone, similar to how a pregnancy stretches the tummy skin, and right. have a lot more skin. So the next big advance was tissue expansion and it allowed us, it gave us another option when we had 
difficult areas or difficult wounds to deal with. And then soon after that came along uh, what we call today a vacuum. Basically what it was, was if you have a wound that's wide open, a corollary to putting a balloon underneath and expanding it, couldn't we put a device on it and put suction and, and have that wound contract? So mm -hmm. to me, that was the next major step. Mm -hmm. And then there was a little lull until plastic <laughs> surgeons and a particular friend of mine called Sidney Coleman repopularized fat grafting. Yes. Now, fat grafting is well over 100 years old. It's been done, but it was never studied. It was never uniformly successful. Not that it is now. We're still scratching at the surface. The possibilities, yeah. Fat grafting. So, But fat grafting brought in a new era for our specialty. And the era is called regenerative surgery. Because what was found was that when you take the fat and, uh, and it's taken very, very easily through tiny little tubes, much like the way liposuction is done, and then prepare it, there are certain factors in there, one of them we call as stem cells, that have the potential to become other tissues, they have regenerative properties so that when they're put under the skin that may be sun damaged, may be heavily wrinkled, may have had radiation damage, the special things within that fat that was grafted can help repair or regenerate the tissue. So the latest significant development in our specialty last 20 years, really, maybe even 25 years, has been fat grafting and regenerative medicine. And unlike expansion and vacuum and flaps, fat has equal application in aesthetic surgery as it does in reconstructive. Good point. Together with the interest in fat grafting, a lot of our colleagues studied how the face ages. You know, we call it a facelift because it was assumed that as we get old, the face drops and you just lift it and pull it up. But when you study faces carefully, as one of our colleagues, Val Lambros from California, yes. you come up with the word deflation, that as we become older, not only does our skin lose elasticity, not only do the tissues go downwards, we also lose volume in our face. So yes, fat grafting has had a significant role as an adjunct or sometimes in, in the right patient instead of a facelift to replace the volume in the face. It's had a role in breast reconstruction, mm -hmm. breast augmentation, lining mm -hmm. an implant with fat. So this is very, very exciting for our specialty. It's uh, given us one other tool to take care of some of the difficult problems that we face. I think those are some wonderful accomplishments. And you really have outlined very nicely the stages of progress that have occurred in our practice. Um, I'm curious, what do you think about the advent uh, and development of implants in general, putting something in the body to change shape? 
Well, again, that's uh, that also goes back years. And, and in fact, one of the first implants to be placed in the breast was something we call a lipoma, which is basically a benign tumor of fatty tissue. And we go back and really the, the current uh, breast implants that we use go back to 1963. And this was developed by a couple of plastic surgeons in Houston at a time when blood transfusions went from glass bottles to plastic. Mm. And Tom Cronin, one of the early, early designers, and I give him credit as the person who came up with the idea of a silicone breast implant, when he saw that and he knew that Dow Corning was developing a silicone gel, they put two and two together, came up with the silicone breast implant. Years later, I believe it was a Frenchman who came up with the idea, okay, we have this plastic, it's called silastic or silicone mm -hmm. shell, mm -hmm. put salt water in it. And then it continued to evolve. And over the, uh, what we're talking about, 62, almost 60 plus years since the first description of the silicone gel implant, it's always been associated. And one of the risks has been what we call capsular contracture or hardening of the breasts. So working with industry and trying to improve on it we called that first set of breast implants the first generation. Mm -hmm. Now on a fifth generation. Progress. Exactly. And with each generation, the implants became more tolerated in the body. They became much better engineered. And also the risk of the capsular contracture has been going steadily down, but it's still with us. And I also think it continues, you know, we're continuing to improve. Uh, and I sometimes tell my patients, well, you know, I put your implants in in 1982. This is 2022. And just like the, the same way as the car that you drive evolved, the implants have evolved and we need to go ahead and change them. That's a good perspective. Very helpful, I think, for people to hear that evolution and have a little bit better understanding of something that has become so mainstream in uh, the field of plastic surgery. Um, you know, you've taught for quite some time. How is that experience different from your regular practice and what have you enjoyed about it? What has kept you doing that? I modeled myself after one of my mentors. In fact, he was a professor of medicine at the University of Bristol. I loved his style, he was friendly, and to this day his words echo in my head when he would say, Nahai, sit and listen to your patients. If you listen to them long enough, they'll tell you what the diagnosis is. He also impressed upon me that if I examine the patient properly without the need for x-rays or gallons of blood tests, most of the time I'll be able to make the diagnosis and then get the test to confirm I'm right. Mm. So what he gave me, I felt, you know what, wouldn't it be wonderful if one day I could influence some medical students in the same way? And along my training, I always wanted to teach 
the fellow residents, the medical students, that I was very fortunate when I finished my training to be asked to stay on the faculty at Emory. And I've been involved in the uh, training of over 110 uh, plastic surgeons. That's amazing. And 45 fellows in aesthetic surgery. Uh, which is additional training, additional specialized training. When somebody, when an individual finishes their training as a plastic surgeon, they're ready to take their board exams. Some choose to do extra training, either enhanced surgery microsurgery, breast or aesthetic surgery. And I've been involved in the training of about 45 fellows wow. in aesthetic surgery. And I feel the fact that I feel a responsibility towards them means that I keep on top of my form, that I read and I know all the latest advances so that when I teach a person and show them how to do a procedure, it's the it's not only the best, but also probably the latest. Yeah, it's current. Most cost-effective and safest way of doing something. That's quite an accomplishment. And that's not easy to do, to remain current like that. So congratulations. It takes a lot of effort. Well, you know, as we're talking about aesthetic practices, have you noticed any changing trends in what procedures patients seem to be seeking out these days? Has that changed over the last few or a couple decades, do you think? It's changed very, very dramatically and has changed based on two developments. One of them is the evolution of what we call the injectables, the toxins and the fillers. We mm -hmm. put them together and call them the injectables. The injectables have proven to be relatively safe, they're effective, they're office procedures, and at least in the short run, very, very cost effective. That's one side. The other side I've already talked about, uh, social media and mm -hmm. uh, promotion by manufacturers, by other physicians and others who have embraced our specialty and have become experts at injectables and cosmetic medicine. So we see a lot of younger people coming in. And early in my career, if a young person came in and said, you know, I don't like this or that, I'd say it's too early for you to have a facelift. Come back in 10 years where a facelift will help you. Make a difference. What we have now is you're not ready, you don't need surgery, but we can relax the lines on your forehead mm -hmm. with, uh, I'll use the word Botox, although we should sure. just say uh, neuromodulators, uh, but Botox has become synonymous with uh, neuromodulators that if your face is deflated, we can add some volume with fillers and beyond that, we have several non-invasive uh, modalities that can tighten the skin. So on the one side, given the development of these non-invasives, on the other side, given social media, electronic media, even print, mm -hmm. TV-type media, there is an interest in what, what we do. And younger people come in mm -hmm. and want to know if we can improve on their appearance. Unfortunately, with the injectables, we do have 
something to something to offer them. Earlier intervention. Exactly. And, and in terms of building a practice, yes, the 25-year-old, the 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I'd say, come back when you're old enough for a facelift, becomes part of our practice now, build a relationship, and then when it's time to go from injectables to surgery, that you've already built your relationship, and we talk to the patient and say, you know, now you're ready for surgery. Well, you know, as you think about that, and we've been talking about how trends have changed, what do you see perhaps on the forefront of plastic surgery? Uh, from your viewpoint, are there current developments that you feel will likely become mainstream in the future? Anything that you feel is going to be a game changer here? Yes. Uh, I mentioned some of these modalities that tighten the skin, but really what I should have said is that these modalities stimulate collagen. And as the collagen is stimulated deep to the skin, it can tighten the skin. There are several areas where today we really don't have an excellent option for it. And that's uh, have a lot of patients who come in and they look fine. But you know, when I stand in my bikini, I have too many wrinkles and skin around my knees. Mm -hmm. really don't have much to offer them. Yes, there is a procedure called a knee lift that leaves a little little scar there. I see patients with stretch marks who don't really, who are not a candidate for tummy tuck to remove the skin with the stretch marks. So I think the technology is improving and the technology will continue to improve. So just as the injectables have given us one option, we'll have another one. Some people may argue and say, hey, Ford, those options are already there. Yes, but they're still developing. You know, not everyone gets the same result. Not everyone is happy with the result. But I think that's where we're going. But the most exciting thing is what we're able to do or the way we will evolve with fat in terms of regeneration, in terms of improving the quality of the skin. Uh, already we're able to deal with dark circles around the eye and fine lines around the lips with treatments derived from the fat that we process. So I think that's the direction we're going. But I'd be remiss if I don't say, you know, don't hang up your scalpel yet. That's right. There will be patients who need, uh, who need facelifts. But what I tell our residents when I give them a lecture on facelift, and I daily tell our fellow, yes, you can pay attention. I'll go over it details of every facelift I do, but become proficient with the injectables because that's how you will build your practice. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the number of facelifts that are done, it's barely over 120,000 a year in the US. But if you look at the number of injectables, it's in the millions. Yeah, it's outrageous, yes. And it really is a spectrum of, of patients in terms of their needs. You know, sometimes you can get away with smaller little procedures, injectables, and then sometimes there's been enough change that really there's nothing but surgery that's going to make a significant enough difference. And you're right to teach your residents and fellows to have skills all along that spectrum to really serve the needs of patients. So I think that's wonderful. 
Anything else you'd see in terms of future advancements that you'd particularly like to see? Maybe something that no one's really thought of yet? Oh, I think about it all the time. Oh, I love that. But I think most of it has already been uh, been thought about. I think on the regenerative side, the ability to induce stem cells from fat into muscle, into cartilage, that has already mm-hmm. been done. There's experimental work that we you could really build an ear on somebody's forearm and then microsurgically transfer it if they've lost their ear. I think in terms of, uh, we talked about fat as an adjunct for breast reconstruction and even aesthetic surgery on top of an implant. I think if we can make that a 100% success rate, 100% take rate, then we have one other thing that's a sure thing to offer to women who've had a mastectomy, mm-hmm. who even with an implant, it still doesn't match the opposite side or still it's not the ideal breast they had before the mastectomy. Uh, I'm excited about what the developments with fat and stem cells will do in terms of uh, not only arresting degenerative disease in the joints of the hand, in the hip, in the in, in the neck. You know, we as surgeons are bent over all the oh, yes. we not living, we get backache, we get neck ache. So I think because of our interest in fat and because we were one of the first specialties working with fat and trying to open its potential that we will be on the forefront of developing a derivative of the fat that we remove from the body into a regenerative treatment for arthritis, for certain skin diseases, scleroderma comes to mind and there's already some progress in that arena. I think that's amazing and wonderful. And you've really given our listeners some great perspective today, listening to not only your experience, but your analysis of what has transpired in the years that plastic surgery as a field has developed. So thank you so much for that. Any final thoughts you need to leave with our listeners? Anything that's come to mind? Yes, I'm going to start by saying I love this specialty. Why did I, I trained as a general surgeon, then I decided I want to be a plastic surgeon. Yes, some of it had to do with all the exciting stuff that was going on at Emory and plastic surgery, but more of it had to do with realizing back then that there was only one way to remove a diseased gallbladder, one way to remove a cancer in the bowel, but plastic surgery, there's so many different options of doing the same thing. And I tell a lot of my patients, there's so many different ways of doing a facelift, an eyelid lift, a breast lift, a tummy tuck, and in the right hands and on the right patient, it's the right way to do it. So I tell them, you know, don't believe what you read and see on social media go to one or two, maximum three reputable 
plastic surgeons in your community, make sure they're certified by the American Board of Surgery, and then decide, you know, who do you trust most? Because it's surgery. Surgery has complications. And I tell my patients, you know, you have to have enough trust in me that if we had a problem with your facelift and I had to reoperate on you, you would still have the confidence for me to take care of it. What's not good for you is, oh, he did it. It didn't turn out right. I'm still loose here. I'm going to go to somebody else. But in the first place, pick someone who you would trust to take care of you if things didn't go according to plan. Fortunately, that's very rare. But I do mention that to my patients. Excellent advice. I also have always told our staff that, you know, the patients, I want them to feel at home here. I want them to be able to come in and chat and say, how are you? How are things to the receptionist, to the nurse? even to me, and I always try to make a note if uh, I saw a patient today who said she's going on vacation in Greece, it's in this computer. When I see her next, I'll say, how was your trip? So it's all about building trust. And then beyond the trust, it's building relationships. Uh, I went to buy a suit once at a very high-end store in Atlanta to the same person who'd call me when they'd bring one that was my size. And then one day he asked me if I would operate on his fiance's eyelids, which I did. And when I went back, he says, you know, Dr. Nahai, you are now in the same sort of business. We're selling an experience. I said, to a certain extent, yes. You're selling me a suit that somebody else made, but yes, it's the experience yeah. relationship with you and how you take care of me that keeps me coming to you, knowing that you're a high-end department store, knowing I can get a suit for less elsewhere, but I come for the personal service. I said, with us, it's different. Yes, it is an experience. It is a service, but no two surgeons have the same experience, the same pair of hands, nor do they have the same aesthetic image or aesthetic vision for how they want their patients to look. So choose your plastic surgeon carefully. I hate to use this anecdote. It's not original to me, but I've heard people say patients, women spend more time looking for the right hairstylist than they do for their surgeon. And this was brought home oh. when my wife's long-standing hairdresser was no longer there. It took her about 18 months. Oh my goodness. It's all about the physician's training, building a relationship, but most important of all, building trust and ask around, you know, who would you go to or who did your best friend go to? Was she happy? I think that's some wonderful advice and very insightful. So thank you. Well, Dr. Fuad Nahai, thank you so much for your time and sharing your insight and uh, great wisdom with our listeners today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. And now I go out and enjoy the 98 degree heat here in Atlanta. Oh, good luck. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. 
please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded. Thank you.